0: Well, hello, and welcome back to Auditing the Global Capital Markets with Allison. We have had very interesting episodes taking you throughout the global economy. And as we start this next episode, number six, we are diving into this phenomenon of gross domestic product as we've reviewed during the last five episodes, there is over $1,540 trillion that circulate across our globe and are almost 220 countries. So now we have to start diving into these individual economies to start understanding where all of these trillions of dollars are generated accumulatively over the course of time. So what we're gonna do is start by understanding how the $1,540 trillion that has accumulated to date was originally created year by year, economy by economy. So let's start by understanding what is the gross domestic product. So the gross domestic product measures the value of economic activity within a country. Strictly defined gross domestic product or often called GDP is the sum of the market values or prices of all final goods and services produced in an economy during a period of time. GDP is a number that expresses the worth of the output of a country or local currency. So way to think about it is Everything that's ever produced, every day, whether a service or a good, has a value. And the gross domestic product is measuring that value every year. It is a comprehensive scorecard of every country's economic health. The gross domestic product is the monetary or market value of all goods and services produced by a country during a particular period, in this case, one year. However, it does not take into consideration the variations in living costs and inflation rates in the different nations. Nonetheless, it is a beneficial method to compare different economies on the international market. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, over in Paris, France, the GDP is the aggregate measure of production. It is the amount of gross value added by all individuals and institutions involved in the production of goods and services. The economic measure considers the taxes and also reduces any subsidies while valuing the outputs. The total can be broken down Based on the contribution of every sector within the industry or economy, this economic measure is considered one of the most important indicators of national development in countries across the world. So now that we understand what the gross domestic product is, let's start analyzing each country. And that way we get a sense of where all of the trillions of dollars are being generated year upon year. So we're gonna start with the United States of America, which is the largest economy on the planet Earth at this time. As of today, the United States of America has been generating the highest level of gross domestic product and is currently hovering at approximately $24 trillion for 2022. And this has, of course, been steadily growing When we look at 2017, it was around $20 trillion, and as of 2020, it was around $23 trillion. So there has been a steady increase in the gross domestic product, and they also have a gross domestic product per capita, which gives you a measurement of all of the individuals who are in the country about their average amount of the gross domestic product per person. Um, And that has been fluctuating as well. And it currently stands at $70,000 as of 2022. Now, it's interesting um, to look at the United States uh, with this almost $24 trillion and compare it to some of the other world economies. And so that's what we're going to do now as I think that even though it is the largest on the earth, we must look at the other countries to see in comparison. So let's start with the European Union overall. Clearly, we'll break down the economies. There are 27 countries in the European Union. They operate as a single market. When you put that entire uh, world trade uh, gross domestic product together for the entire uh, European Union, they uh, are currently hovering uh, a little below the USA uh, as a whole. And right now, it looks like the European Union gross domestic product, as of 2021, uh, was standing at approximately $15 trillion. So it's very interesting that Uh, The European Union uh, basically uh, can fluctuate, Um, depends on uh, the calculations per year. Uh, In 2021, uh, the European Union stood at a gross domestic product of $17 trillion. uh, And uh, that uh, did move a little bit uh, towards the lower $16 trillion number in 2022. So now if we break it down, I think it'd be good to review some of these numbers uh, per country uh, because it is very fascinating um, to look at the top 15 countries uh, that we currently have in terms of the gross domestic product as of 2022. Understanding the economic landscape of various countries will help us to compare and prepare for this global expansion. Many businesses go global to access greater talent, pools, reach new markets, and diversify their teams for better business continuity. With that being said, we're just going to review the top 15 countries in terms of their GDP as of 2022 to give us an in-depth review of where we are according to the World Bank Group. So when we start with the USA, There are a number of factors that contribute to the success of the USA. An entrepreneurial environment that encourages hard work and long hours certainly helps. But decentralized government, advanced research universities, and favorable regulatory environments also contribute, so the United States will likely always be in the top countries by GDP in the world. At the publication of the World Bank Group, they had the USA at $21 trillion. Obviously, that fluctuates depending on the measurement. Moving to the second largest economy, that's China. And they stand at a little less than $15 trillion in gross domestic product. The Chinese economy, one of the fastest growing economies of the 21st century, now ranked as the second largest economy in the world, is currently valued at a gross domestic product of almost $15 trillion. With China's Belt and Road Initiative effectively merging its foreign and economic policy, promotion of using the Chinese renminbi, which is their currency, for the use of settlements has increased. The country is increasingly playing an influential role in the global economy. It has been the largest contributor to global growth since the financial crisis of 2008. The next largest economy is Japan, at almost passing five trillion dollars in GDP. Japan's four main islands—Honshu, Hokkaido, Shikoku, and Kyushu—constitute nearly 98 percent of its land area. It has the le- it has the world's third largest economy by nominal GDP, and the fourth largest economy by purchasing power parity. Ranked as one of the most innovative countries in the world, Japan is the world's largest electronic goods producer and the third largest automobile manufacturer. The country generally has a surplus in annual trade and international investment. The country's workforce is highly qualified and skilled proving to be instrumental in organizational growth. All of these factors contribute to Japan being one of the top countries of gross domestic product. The fourth largest economy is Germany at a little less than $4 trillion, $3.85 trillion in gross domestic product. Germany has the fourth largest GDP in the world. The total value of exports and imports is equal to 86.9% of GDP. Germany is a European nation with the biggest drivers of its economy being its service industries, including telecommunication, healthcare, and tourism. The nation employs a social market economy that emphasizes the value of open market capitalism and also ensures a number of social services guarantees. The country is ranked and also ensures a number of social services guarantees And the country is ranked number one in the world for entrepreneurship due to its skilled labor force, highly developed infrastructure, and technological expertise. The fifth largest economy is the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom, also known as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, consists of England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. It is the fifth largest economy in the world at $2.76 trillion in nominal GDP, and the second largest in Europe in terms of GDP. The number one would be Germany. The UK ranks high in the annual global competitiveness reports and the World Bank's ease of doing business rankings as well. Interesting, now we're moving out of Europe for number six. The sixth largest economy is the Republic of India at a nominal GDP of $2.66 trillion. The Republic of India is a federal democracy that consists of 28 states and eight union territories. It is the largest democracy and the sixth largest economy in the world. India has thriving manufacturing, technology, and service sectors. Since 2014, the rate of foreign direct investment inflows to India has grown steadily as some key policy changes were incorporated by the government to facilitate this growth. This makes India one of the top countries by GDP in 2022. Some strategic steps have been taken to stimulate India's business environment, including reforms to remove bottlenecks in key business areas, reducing minimum capital requirements and simplifying the process of obtaining necessary licenses. Now we move back to Europe with the economy of France, which stands at a nominal GDP of $2.63 trillion. France is the seventh largest economy in the world. It is the most visited destination in the world and consequently has a thriving tourism industry. Also, foreign trade is an essential component of its economy. The value of imports and exports comprise 63% of the country's GDP. Strong protection of property rights and an efficient regulatory framework encourage investors. France ranks 32 in the World Bank's 2019 Ease of Doing Business Index. There are foreign players in various sectors and 31 out of 40 Interesting, there are foreign players in various sectors, and 31 out of Fortune 500 companies are from this prominent European Union member. We'll dive into the Fortune 500 companies globally in another episode. Moving on, economy number eight is Italy at $1.88 trillion in GDP. Italy's economy is the third largest in the Eurozone, first Germany, then the United Kingdom, Third is Italy. Fourth is France. Italy's economy is the third largest in the Eurozone and the eighth largest by GDP. In addition to its sizable economy, Italy is one of the most influential countries in Europe. It is a key member of the Eurozone, the European Union, the G7, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, and the G20. Italy's diversified economic growth is propelled by the consumer goods industry. GDP's expenditure side includes 61% of household consumption, 19% of government expenditure, and 17% of the gross fixed capital formation. Exports of services and goods contribute to 30% of GDP, while imports account for 27%, adding 3% to GDP. Moving on to Canada, the ninth largest economy in the world at $1.64 trillion in GDP. Canada has a mainly service based economy. The threshold for foreign investment in Canada is 5 million Canadian dollars for direct investments and 50 million Canadian dollars for indirect investments. The country has also been a key member of the World Trade Organization since 1995. It also has extensive trading ties with many nations due to its bilateral and regional free trade agreements. A well-educated workforce, multicultural, multilingual coexistence, a thriving economy, and the government's support for setting up business make Canada a preferred investment destination. The 10th largest economy in the world is South Korea at $1.63 trillion in nominal GDP. South Korea was considered a developing country until the 1960s. Due to far-reaching economic reforms referred to as the miracle of the Hangang River, the country's economy entered a period of rapid growth, about an annual 10% growth for over 30 years. Today, South Korea's GDP is about $2 trillion in purchasing power parity. It stands at $2.29 trillion. And it's one of the most developed and industrialized countries in the world. South Korea places great importance on education, innovation, and investment into research and development. The country has a highly skilled workforce, earning a high median household income. Services provide the majority of the country's GDP at 59%, with industry currently at 38%, and agriculture at 2%. The 11th largest economy is Russia at a nominal GDP of $1.48 trillion. But going back to this comparative form of GDP called purchasing power parity, it puts it at $4.02 trillion, which is why Russia is quite a commendable force, even as the 11th largest economy in the world. Russia has the largest landmass of all countries in the world, and boasts natural resources worth $75 trillion, according to World Bank estimates. Ever since the privatization of Russia's energy and defense-related sectors in the 1990s, the country has taken great strides when it comes to growth. Revenues from oil, natural gas, and energy drive the Russian economy. Foreign trade is important as the total value of imports and exports is equal to 46.7% of GDP, making Russia one of the top countries by GDP. Moving on to the 12th largest economy in the world of Brazil. Again, the nominal GDP is $1.44 trillion, but the purchasing power parity, which we bring up now with these other countries trying to see the equivalent comparison at $3.08 trillion. And we should go ahead and give you a sense of what that actually means, because often we hear these terms and we're not quite sure, well, what does that refer to and what is the comparison? So purchasing power parity was created to attempt to move beyond the gross domestic product um, denomination. It's a contemporary macroeconomics term. So gross domestic product refers to the total monetary value of the goods and services produced within one country. Nominal GDP is what we've been using in our discussions so far. And nominal GDP uh, is what we've been using. But purchasing power parity is an economic theory that compares different countries' currencies through a basket of goods approach. okay. So that's something that allows you to say, okay, I'm gonna use uh, this popular metric as a macroeconomic analysis where we can compare different countries' currency through a basket of goods. So we put the basket of goods together and then we compare across countries. And it allows economists to compare economic productivity and standards of living between countries, which is why it varies and is a different number than the purchasing power parity, uh, is different than the gross domestic product. So it, it tends to be a little bit higher. Now, Brazil's economy is the 12th largest in the world with an estimate worth of natural resources hovering around 21.8 trillion dollars. This is one of the main reasons Brazil is one of the top countries by GDP as of 2020. The country's diverse and open economy has developed flourishing trade relationships with more than 100 different countries. According to the 2019 Index of Economic Freedom, the total foreign direct investment in Brazil was $62.7 billion. The Brazilian government promotes foreign investment in scientific and technological infrastructure. Brazil's moderate climate, excellent infrastructure, supportive government and wealth of natural resources makes it a highly favored destination for foreign investment. The next largest economy, the 13th largest is Australia at a nominal GDP of $1.33 trillion. And interesting, see the first nine countries had the same purchasing power parity just like Australia does, their purchasing power parity and their nominal GDP is the same, $1.33 trillion. Australia has the 13th largest economy in the world with an overall GDP of $1.33 trillion and a GDP per capita of $51,885. The economy experienced slower growth in 2017 and a 1.96% increase in GDP. Having rolled out in early 2017, Australia's new foreign policy, a type of white, white paper agenda, it has created a roadmap for the country's economic, security and foreign policy relations. The nation is ranked as the 12th best country in the world to set up a business due to low entry costs and streamlined procedures. The 14th largest economy in the world is Spain, with a nominal GDP of $1.28 trillion, but the purchasing power parity is a little, a little bit higher at $1.77 trillion. Spain is the second largest country in the European Union. Spain's economy is facilitated by structural reforms, transparent judicial regulatory systems, and sound economic institutions. Steady modernization has helped the Spanish economy grow continually with the industry sector contributing nearly 70, pardon me, nearly 27% to the country's GDP. The total value imports and exports is equal to 65.5% of GDP. The 15th largest economy in the world is Indonesia. Indonesia with a nominal GDP of $1.05 trillion but a purchasing power parity of $3.33 trillion. Indonesia is the largest economy in Southeast Asia. The country is one of the world's emerging markets and has been a target of business expansion over the last decade. The country's economy is heavily dependent on domestic market and government budget spending, Since the 1990s, the majority of the economy has been controlled by individual Indonesians and foreign companies. As Indonesia continues to increase their global footprint, they will likely climb as one of the top countries by GDP in 2022. Before we jump into the emerging markets, uh, again, because we have over 222 countries on the planet Earth, we're just reviewing the top 15 economies, to get a sense of the trillions of dollars that are generated per year. And what I want us to pause and think about right now um, as we begin to dive in a little bit into uh, what these numbers mean, I want us to think about if there's $1,540 trillion that is available and circulating across the globe, and yet the GDP, as we've reflected in the top 15 countries, is always steadily every year less than uh, that $100 that means that there are thousands of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars that are sitting. They're sitting in those first episodes as we discussed in the assets under management. And that's why this podcast and this radio program started We are auditing the global capital markets because we want to understand where is the money going and what is it being used for? And is it working for our good as a human race and helping the planet Earth and its survival and prosperity or not? And so that is uh, precisely what we're up to and why we want to dissect every dollar and be able to get down to where is this money going? So let's keep going in our analysis of the top 15 countries before we'll have a moment on the other almost 200 that remain. If we turn to the next emerging markets that really get on the radar screen, uh, we won't obviously dive into the hundred and ninety-nine other countries across the globe, but we've already reviewed the top 15 countries in terms of gross domestic product, including the top emerging markets of China, India, and Brazil. So if we move beyond those top emerging markets, the next set of countries uh, after those markets, including Russia, uh, which is considered still an emerging market, uh, you have Mexico. So Mexico, interesting enough, also has a gross domestic product of about $1.2 uh, trillion. And that has hovered at about that amount uh, in the last five years. And it has you know, quickly become one of the most popular emerging markets uh, for investors. Uh, it is the second largest economy in Latin America and the 13th largest in the world. Uh, depending on the indices. Right now, it's actually 16 out of the uh, top uh, 15 countries. Uh, But back in 2018, it was the 13th. So Mexico with Russia, Brazil, and, you know, the other emerging markets can vary in terms of the ranking. Mexico's economy is heavily reliant on exports uh, to the United States of America, You know, which means that the price of the domestic stock market and currency, which is the peso, are closely linked to the USA dollar. But despite falls in the price of raw materials and volatility across global markets, the predictions for the country remain positive. So Mexico is always on the horizon. The next big economy uh, that we already uh, reviewed at the end, which is the number 15, which is Indonesia and obviously you know, they have a very high, uh, over 1.1 $1. Uh, $1 trillion dollar economy and, you know, it's an emerging market. Uh, it, it does have uh, turbulent exchange rates and, uh, the market, uh, tends to be unpredictable, um, with varying growth across the last five years. Uh, but, uh, it is an emerging market, uh, that has, you know, tremendous, you know, interest and, uh, Growth with more foreign direct investment, more foreign capital, it's boosting the economy. uh, And, you know, there's a lot of uh, eyes on Indonesia. Now, the next countries are less than $1 trillion, but they're edging close. Uh, That's Turkey. Uh, Turkey has attracted the attention of investors around the world due to the significant improvements that have been made in the economic and social development outlook. For instance, between the last five years or so, uh, the economic landscape looked markedly different as the country's financial market was in a downward spiral for a large portion of like 2018, 2019, and the market fears were rooted in the country's reliance on foreign currencies, as Turkey has one of the largest account deficits in the world. Uh, and they were expecting the last five, six years of collapse of what they call the Turkish lira. But they have hang on there. I think the earthquakes this year obviously are going to have a big uh, knockout effect on Turkey's slump uh, in terms of uh, its emerging market. Uh, and, you know, other emerging markets are feeling the same sort of rebounds, uh, ups and downs like Argentina and South Africa. Uh, but Turkey definitely is in the on the rise. Uh, the next economy would be Thailand. They're about half a trillion to three quarters of a trillion dollars in gross domestic product. Thailand's economic growth has been pretty incredible, progressing from a low-income country to an upper-income country in just one generation. But the government isn't done. They've outlined plans to address economic stability, human capital, equality, and market competitiveness. Hence, I think that the Thai economy is growing uh, on average from 1960 to 1996. It was about 7.5%. Um, but there has been a slowdown uh, from the 2005 to 2015 period with the Asian financial crisis. And, of course, with our global economic crisis in 2018, uh, you know, Thailand was heavily affected. But, you know, they're forecasted in these, you know, last five and the next five to have growth. Uh, The next economy would be South Africa. They hover at less than uh, $400 billion of gross domestic product, um, but have reached almost half a trillion dollars at one point. South Africa is a middle-income emerging market. And although its economy experienced sustained growth acceleration from 1994 with the end of apartheid to 2007, it has been decelerating since. This is because the economy is heavily reliant on natural resources, which means when commodity prices are low, the South African economy often does worse than its peers. In the first half of 2018, for instance, South Africa fell into its first recession since 2009 amid investors' concerns about the overall emerging market route, which happened 2017 to 2018. 20 pre-pandemic and of course the pandemic worsened that so uh the gdp growth in 2019 was was around one percent and and obviously these last four years a hard hit by the pandemic malaysia is the next big economy hovering at about 400 billion dollars as well although malaysia only ranks 10th by gdp in terms of emerging markets Bloomberg's analysis of emerging markets ranks Malaysia right at the top in terms of current account surplus, economic stability, and growth outlook. Malaysia's economy has experienced an average yearly growth of about 5.4% since 2010 through 2018, and compared to a lot of other emerging markets, Malaysia got through our 2018 financial crisis relatively unscathed you know growing at less than 5% and is expected to keep growing in 2019 around that obviously 2019 to 2023 uh all these emerging markets uh are hard hit by the global health pandemic so just giving you a sense that some of the other trillions that continue to you know mount to get to the total gross domestic product which we discussed in in uh, episode 5 hovers According to most international monetary fund and uh, World Bank outlooks, uh, we always hover on, you know, around the $500 trillion mark in terms of, you know, all the capital um, that circulates through the gross domestic products of all of these countries. So we are really fascinated um, about the influx of capital and the maintenance of these high levels of growth and gross domestic product over time. And so now we wanna dive into some of these deeper issues uh, in terms of now that we have a sense of the top economies on the globe uh, in terms of gross domestic product, uh, reviewing um, all the top emerging markets, uh, we wanna return to the discussion that we left off on episode five in terms of some of the asset managers that we are reviewing to see how this money is being managed. And as you know, we left off with BlackRock. Uh, we've reviewed how BlackRock uh, had hit about $10 trillion in assets under management uh, at that point as of last year of 2022. So probably about $11 as of today. And uh, we now want to go into the rankings of these other huge asset managers. And the point now is to see that what's happening with the gross domestic product, it is circulating per economy. And each economy is beginning to see that that wealth is being stored. And it's being stored in these asset management companies um, as we all are saving our money um, we're doing it through pensions. We're doing it through our savings accounts. We're doing it through our real estate, both commercial real estate and residential real estate. Uh, we saw also on the last episode, uh, we have a fair amount that's being put into different kinds of categories from private equity to venture capital to some form of asset management through investment management companies. And as you know, we know that at this point, um, there's about $147 trillion as of today that is a part of the overall global assets under management. So it gives you a sense that there is a tremendous amount of capital that is basically being stored away. And the reason why we're going to be diving into this more and more in every episode, is what we want to do is begin to see if some of this money can be released and used more effectively for the overall advancement of some of these global causes that many are working uh, to to tackle. Like, for instance, um, the overall goal to reduce hunger on the planet Earth, the overall goal to reduce poverty, And uh, address the environmental degradation, the environmental devastation, and all the challenges uh, surrounding uh, climate change. So the issue is always a a question of capital and where the capital can be derived from to take on some of these very challenging issues that uh, we are constantly being, you know, pulled from here and there. So where we left off uh, last episode, uh, after reviewing BlackRock, we were beginning to look at Vanguard, which is the second largest uh, asset management company in the world. And we know that they're standing at about uh, 15 trillion. Uh, well, we know that they're standing at uh, around uh, $9 trillion under management. And uh, that was uh, as of last year, And uh, we were reviewing, um, you know, some of the tough financial decisions that Vanguard was making um, in attracting more and more clients um, to become number two. And so that was uh, sort of where we had left off. And it's very important uh, to understand that, you know, all of these companies are pulling from all of these gross domestic products that are uh, from high economies. So, for instance, you know, Vanguard had a tremendous amount of international operations um, in, you know, China, in Australia, you know, these high domestic product company countries where they can attract more capital to go into their um, market funds to uh, invest in their uh, through their asset management companies. Uh, so now we want to see what are some of the com- companies that. Uh, that are after uh, that level Uh, because we know that at this stage the ones that have the most money are making the majority of decisions on on where this money is being allocated and so that's what we are you know diving into and really beginning to understand more deeply And that is precisely because every time uh, we're going to be diving into these issues and we're going to be doing all of the auditing uh, of the global capital markets, we're going to be understanding uh, how we're living in such an interconnected world. Because at this stage, we are so interdependent. And that is particularly reflective when you see how every region in the world depends on another significant region for at least 25% of the flow of goods and services that it values the most. So in general, regions that are manufacturing regions like Europe, Asia, Pacific, and China, if we look at it on its own, because it's such a large economy, it, it, it depends. Uh, very strongly on the rest of the world for resources, food to some degree, to degree, but really energy and minerals of different sorts. So you know, if we give some examples, China imports over 25 percent of its minerals from far places, uh, as far flung as Brazil, Chile, South Africa. China imports energy, particularly in the form of oil from the Middle East and Russia. Europe is emblematic of these forms of dependency on energy, as it was dependent on Russia for over 50% of its energy. And now that has all drastically changed in the last year because of the war of aggression by Russia in Ukraine. In some other regions in the world, places that are resource rich, like the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Latin America, those places are highly dependent on the rest of the world for their manufactured goods. Well over half the world's population lives in those places. They import well over 50% of their electronics and similar amounts of their pharmaceuticals. They are highly dependent on other parts of the world for things that are really quite critical to development and for modern life. North America is somewhat of a different story. We don't have a single spot of quite as great a dependency, at least at the broad category level. We import close to 25% of, manu- of what we use in net value terms across the spectrum, both of resources and of manufactured goods. So this doesn't yet speak of data and international uh, intellectual property, For example, uh, where the U.S. and Europe are fairly significant producers and exporters, whereas a country like China is a very large consumer of intellectual property. So we really are interdependent as a global economy. Uh, And this is also why the capital is intertwined. And the global workforce is also quite striking in its interdependence. So, like if you look at the r- workers in regions outside of North America that serve North American demand, and you ask Europe as well, it looks like over 60 million people in regions outside North America are serving North American demand. And there's a corresponding number in Europe of about 50 million people. So, that's 110 million people outside of Europe and North America that are serving those regions. And these numbers are very substantial versus the working populations in these countries, right? So when you consider how much of what North Americans or Europeans are consuming, it could be produced onshore by onshore labor. But the answer is not even remotely close to those sorts of numbers, at least given their means of production or the way services are delivered today and the role people play in that. So it just shows the interdependence of goods and of the products, the services, and if you look at the categories of flows that have increased in recent years, and what's driving growth in global flows now that the trade in goods has stabilized since the global, you know, pandemic, you know, it's really due to um, all of these changes in the overall global economy. And all of that plays into the flows. You know, flows are linked to knowledge and know-how. Knowledge services that have historically grown more slowly than manufactured goods and resources with increased global connection over time have flipped over the last 10 years. Professional services such as engineering services are among, are among those more traditional trade flows that have been growing fastest at about 6% a year versus resources which is slow to just around 2%. Anything that involves real know-how, engineering, but also providing, say, call center support is in that category. The flows of internet in, intellectual property are growing even faster. Now, intellectual property is tricky because accounting for it is a very tricky thing to do. But it roughly looks at flows of the fun stuff. You know, so we really wanna understand how all of that is affecting um, the overall flows. And it's also important to consider flows of patents and ideas and the way countries or companies will use ideas or know-how developed in one country to help what they do broadly across the world. Those flows have been growing at roughly 6% per year as well. These are data flows The flows of packets of data, for example, if we were in different countries while conducting like interviews that would be, you know, flowing between us. There are also flows linked to our ever expanding use of the cloud and data localization. Data transfer is happening more and more quickly. So the flows of international students has also been rising. And that was, you know, briefly interrupted by the pandemic that we don't have to belabor in terms of the reasoning but the flows are going to rebound and are rebounding. So it's important to consider the degree to which everything's going to jump back on an accelerated growth trajectory moving forward. And so, you know, we have to understand that that flow of capital, that flow of people, that flow of products and services, you know, is affecting also how countries are developing and how capital is being utilized, which is really you know what we're diving into in this in this whole discussion. So if we can just take a moment and also think about if we were to understand you know this whole challenge around the, the flow of capital and where the future of global flows, you know, tends to be projected. You know, the media tends to focus on what some see as, you know, globalization's imminent demise, accepting that global ties, you know, continue to bond and connect us across the world. But it's also natural for folks to have pretty strong reactions to these intense and ongoing global disruptions that we've experienced in recent years. So how do we think about globalization at the highest level right now? Because the world we live in right now is highly dependent on these flows. And if we look at the research and we have a decoupling of what's going on regionally, if you kind of look at things along regional lines, the individual regions just can't be independent anymore. Because if you just start to play with what sorts of decoupling of regions would be even possible, you'll begin to see it's, you know, very quickly, it's just not something we can do. So it's not possible to get groups of countries that have become so strongly interconnected to break up. Um, In fact, it's very difficult to get those strongly connected countries to become less so. You know, in in fact, we're moving in the opposite direction. So if we have more constant regionalization, constant coupling of regions and areas, it just means that we have a more and more interdependent world. That means there's an interdependent uh, flow of capital. Uh, There's an interdependent flow of goods and services. And we're all being impacted by that. And so we need to look and see if we understand that at this point, we want to begin to understand the auditing of these global capital markets and where this flow of capital is going. And we're clear that the top countries are generating the majority of gross domestic product, and yet the need is preeminent across all the regions, um, but they're not seeing their fair share of access to the other, you know, areas of uh, capital flows. We need to then start asking what can be done to diversify this situation, because. It is critical now that we see more and more of this capital being diversified in its flows beyond just the top 20 countries, top, you know, the G20 or the top 10 emerging markets. So if we look at the situation in terms of returning to the overall analysis of Assets under management. We have been reviewing the trillion dollar club of asset managers that, you know, take on this 147 trillion that's under management. We've covered BlackRock. We've covered Vanguard. And so the next uh, big group um, that we have been tracking um, and again, this number is going to obviously be larger because this is breaking it down from 2017. We're on the article that we have been reviewing in past episodes called Chart the Trillion Dollar Club of Asset Managers with Jeff Jardines in uh, the um, visualcapitalist.com uh, website. And at that point, you know, they were looking at the top. trillion that was being sort of broken down across the world. Obviously that's grown a lot more since 2017, but I believe that it's a good indication of the top groups. So after BlackRock and Vanguard Group, the next is State Street Global Advisors. And they uh, are then followed by Fidelity Investments, and again, the State Street Global Advisors at that point was, you know, probably a little less than three trillion. Uh, obviously, that number has probably doubled since then. The Fidelity Investments was the next one, and they were probably about two and a half trillion dollars under management. J.P. Morgan Asset Management at two trillion. BNY Mellon. At less than two trillion, Pemco about one point seven trillion, Amundi of France there at one point seven trillion. Capital Group of the USA about one and a half trillion dollars, Legal and General Investment Management at one point four trillion dollars. And from there, we move on to the government pension investment fund of Japan, which has $1.3 trillion, PGIM of the USA at over $1 trillion, Northern Trust at over $1 trillion, Wellington Management at over $1 trillion, and the Norge Bank Investment Management at over $1 trillion. So all of these are investment management firms that we were reviewing in other episodes. They give us a sense of, you know, where the money is currently sitting. And really at this point, we need to begin to break down how many trillions of dollars of the $147 trillion that we know is currently under management. Uh, could be put to better use for generating greater opportunity for solving the world's problems. And how can we do that? Um, As you know, uh, we were very excited in episode four to review the $50 trillion that has moved into what we're calling globally the environmental society and governance metrics areas. So at least there is a heightened understanding that the money needs to be used for the betterment of the world. And that's really what these metrics are about. And we need to have a a tightening on that. And so we'll be looking for guests to come on the program and to discuss with us more thoroughly what we can do to address these issues. So, it has been an exciting episode number six. We are so delighted to be here with you. There's so much more to talk about and so much more to explore, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from all of you and to get all of your feedback. Please reach out to me at Allison at 2414Morgan Development International, at Allison at 2414Morgan.com, or the Allison at 2414morgan.com and the website is www.2414mdinternational.com and all of this gives us an opportunity to interact with all of you and to get your feedback and to dive in to how we can continue to audit the global capital markets with Allison every week. So I'm across social media on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, LinkedIn, TikTok, and all of the different social media platforms on YouTube and on Snapchat. You can reach me again. I'm Allison Johnson, and this is Auditing the Global Capital Markets with Allison. It has been a delight to be with you here today. So many things to explore, so much more to dive into, and I look forward to hearing all of the feedback from you as my audience. So look forward to hearing from you soon. Again, Allison at 2414morgan.com or www.2414mdinternational.com or across the social media platforms under Allison Johnson. I'm here in Washington, D.C., and we're looking forward to getting your feedback. Take care and talk with you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.